0: All right, Jesse, I'm still dreaming about that raging prohibition party from last week's historical murder. What do you have for me this week? When an Ohio
1: father is shockingly gunned down by a mysterious motorcyclist, the police discover that the middle aged Midwesterner had a whole walk in closets worth of skeletons, and one of them may have come calling. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about
0: mysteries, murders, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And as usual, you beautiful people showed up for us. So thank you guys so much for the really, really sweet reviews. You have no idea how much they really do touch us, especially, especially me.
0: Yes. Also, um, this is your last week to enter the Crime Con contest. So, yes. Yep. As a reminder, um, in order to enter, you can share a post on Instagram, Facebook. You can even do TikTok if you want. And to just share Love Murder, you can share your most recent episode. You can share where you listen to Love Murder. You can really get creative with it just be sure to tag us at Love Murder Pod and then also put the hashtag CrimeCon so we know that that's the post that you are entering. Make sure to, if you do it on TikTok or Facebook, just send us a quick message so that we don't miss it. We will repost on Instagram and that's how we're keeping track of all the entries. Also, if you are bummed that you aren't able to come to CrimeCon, do not fret. We're going to actually be doing a super fun merch giveaway so that you don't miss out on any of the new fun merch that we're launching at CrimeCon. So you'll kind of be there in spirit.
1: Yes, you'll still get some exclusive CrimeCon merch, which Andy has been working on. I know that some people in our discussion group got an early viewing Sneak peek. last night. A sneak peek, and it looks so cool. Um, So I'm very appreciative to you today, Andy, for doing all the hard work on that. Of course. And we will be announcing the winner of the CrimeCon, the two tickets giveaway, next episode, next Wednesday at the top of the episode. So
0: come on back for that. That's going to be fun. So yeah, be sure to get your entries in, everyone. Yeah, this is last chance for romance and a, (laughs) a chance
1: to meet Andy and I. All right, so Andy, it is snowing here as I record, like full-on crazy blizzard. Stop! I know it's wild, and because it's so gross outside when we should be moving into spring, I decided that we were going to start on a summery day in Ohio, back in your old stomping grounds, Andy. Yeah, where it's often
0: not beautiful, and not always, so, not so nice. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but. In June, it's usually nice. And that's where we're going to today. So let's get going.
0: Will you please post a video or story later to the Love Murder podcast or Love Murder Instagram of the snow? Because I'm dying to see it. It's crazy. I will 100% post a story. Okay, cool.
1: It was a busy and bright early summer day. that Saturday, June 16th, 2001 in Akron, Ohio. The BJ's Wholesale Club was bustling with activity that afternoon as people prepared for their Father's Day barbecues the next day. Despite the increased traffic, it was still pretty much business as usual for an employee named Carolyn who was working the gas kiosk at the BJ's fuel station. So Carolyn kind of opened the door a little bit. She was trying to get that nice new summer breeze coming in, although, of course, there was a lot of that gas smell, which some people love and some people loathe. I personally kind of like it. And while she was doing so, she noticed that there was a black motorcycle with lime green trim kind of circling into the station at that point. It was making a ton of noise. She kind of rolled her eyes like she was used to, you know, seeing these motorcycles come in, these big trucks coming, revving their engines. It was like, all right, all right, we get it, buddy, you know? Yeah, yep, yep. And so at that moment, a black SUV pulled in and pulled up to one of the pumps. So the man driving the SUV hadn't even gotten out of his car yet when she heard a loud crack. Now, Carolyn was familiar with firearms, and she did know the difference between the sound of a car engine backfiring and the deadly ring of a bullet leaving a gun's chamber. The motorcyclist, and she could not be sure if this person was a man or a woman, was now standing next to the driver's side of the SUV with their arm outstretched. As she gaped in horror, the motorcyclist turned to look directly at her, though she could not see their face through the, you know, major shield um, of the helmet. Okay. But she could tell that whoever the person was, was staring right at her And had a gun. Uh, And so she said that there was probably only a matter of seconds, but it felt like forever as this person seemed to decide whether or not they were gonna take her out as well. And thankfully, the person got back onto the bike and they ended up speeding off. They left a patch of burned rubber behind, like a literal patch of burned rubber, and they ran a red light to get away. At that point when the danger had passed, Carolyn rushed over to the man in the SUV who was now slumped over. So this man did end up being in his 40s. We're going to talk about him in a little bit, but he looked older because he had a very thick mop of prematurely gray hair, like almost white, basically. Okay. At that moment, Carolyn began trembling because she saw the color literally draining from his face. And it was as though she was watching the life come out of him. So she ended up running back to the gas kiosk and she was shaking so badly she could barely call 911. But she managed to do that and she also alerted her her manager. And her manager used the PA system to make an announcement to plead for medical professionals to run to the gas kiosk to hopefully help this man. Okay. Well, within minutes, five women who were a collection of nurses and doctors ended up running to the SUV. And together they hoisted the man out, which was a pretty big job. This guy was six, five and over 230 pounds.
0: Um, that's a tall boy.
1: He is a tall boy. So they managed to get him onto the ground and stretch him out and they started trying to perform life-saving procedures on him and Carolyn was still right there witnessing the whole thing and she said that there was blood everywhere. Like she didn't really know when she first looked at him how bad it was other than she knew it was very serious and when they finally took him out of the suv it was clear that he had been shot and there was just blood everywhere it was running out of the back of his head he had a bullet hole the size of a dime on his cheek
0: oh god and mm-hmm, i always hate that in movies when they shoot through the cheek it always is just so i don't know why it like always resonates with me in a gross way more than anywhere else
1: I think it's because as humans we instinctually cover our faces when something is going down. You know, like we cover the front part of our faces instinctually. Yeah, and so there's something about that part that is. I mean, they say the eyes are the windows to the soul, but it really, like a face is kind of what makes our humanity. It's yeah, how we show our emotions. So to have a a, a bullet fly through that part of you is yeah, yeah it is. It's extremely unsettling. Yeah, yeah. And it looked like the bullet had gone through his cheek in the front and then exited out of the back of his head. Yeah. So they're doing their darndest, but this is a really rough case. As the man's life hung in the balance, emergency medical services and detectives rushed to the scene. For the medical professionals, the next hour would be critical. For the detectives, it would take more than a year of tireless police work to begin to unravel the complicated life of the man who lay bleeding out on the ground of a BJ's gas station. It would soon be revealed that the victim's name was Jeff Zach. He was a 44-year-old married father of a teenage son. As the investigators interviewed loved ones, they soon realized that this on-the-surface ordinary man led a surprisingly complex life. So was the motorcyclist a man or a woman? Was it a professional hit or the work of passionate hatred? Soon, the detectives would meet a cast of suspects, a long-suffering wife, a pair of angry ex-friends burned in a business arrangement gone wrong, a sultry ex-mistress, and her powerful husband. Andy, it is a real who it on today's love murder, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. Oh,
0: I love a whodunit. So the detectives
1: identified Jeff based on the driver's license in his wallet, and they scoped out the scene for evidence. It was time to start digging into his life to find out who could possibly benefit from his death, because there was no question that this was a targeted hit, obviously. A good place to start was with his wife of over 13 years, Bonnie. The couple had been together for 15 years and married for 13. She also obviously needed to be notified of the attempted murder so she could get to the hospital and be with her husband. But before they had even reached Stowe, Ohio, which is near Akron, it's where this family lived, they got a call that Jeff had actually not survived
0: oh god he
1: yeah he had been pronounced dead at the akron city hospital at 12 46 p.m only 15 minutes after he had left the scene in an ambulance okay so now they're going to inform her not of an attempted murder but of a murder actual murder yeah and that means that the task yeah has become that much more grim but also that much more important to gain this evidence now you know yep Bonnie, Jeff's wife, was an attractive auburn-haired woman in her 40s, and she was absolutely stunned to hear this news. You know, we often hear about the partner underreacting. She immediately burst into hysterical sobs. She seemed genuinely very surprised. While they gave Bonnie a moment to collect herself, they took in the house's decor, and they noticed a family portrait that showed Jeff, like I said, all six foot five of him, uh, you know, attractive Bonnie and their young, at the time of the picture, was like a preteen son. At the time of the murder, their son Ashton was 13 years
0: old. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. And Ashton is a pseudonym used in our primary source today, which is If Looks Could Kill by M. William Phelps. Ooh, If Looks
0: Could Kill.
1: If looks could kill, that's the name. You know, the the titles always kind of give you a hint. So we'll we'll see where this one goes. This is also a scorned love kills episode, which you know is my fave. Thank God. So yeah. So they see that the family portrait, and they look like a happy, beautiful family. And Bonnie, when she gets herself together, does admit that looks can be deceiving and that the marriage was extraordinarily troubled. She said that Joff was a good dad, but he was not a good husband. She even admitted that they had been fighting that very morning, and, and it had been a bad fight. Once they informed Ashton about the death of his father, and he was given a moment to collect himself, he told the officers that his parents fought a lot And that on that particular morning, he had actually heard his father threaten to divorce his mother. Oh, okay. So, Bonnie, things aren't looking too good for you right now. After all, it's always the spouse. But before we pull too deep into Investigation Station, let's go back and talk a little bit about our recently deceased Jeff Zach and how he arrived at this moment in time. Jeff was born on January 20th, 1957 in Detroit, Michigan, ultimately becoming the eldest of three brothers. Jeff's father abandoned the family when Jeff was only eight years old. And this was an event that would form a lot of the not-so-great parts of Jeff's personality. Okay. Um, He would spend pretty much the rest of his life having a very outsized and angry response to rejection and abandonment.
0: Okay. Okay. That
1: makes sense. His mother, Elaine, yeah. His mother, Elaine, said that it was the hardest on Jeffrey out of all of the children. He was the oldest, and he was also the closest to his father. Uh, He absolutely idolized him. And when his father left, his mother had to go back to work. So she wasn't around either. So it was kind of like compounded abandonment. And Jeff turned from a happy kid into a pretty angry one um yeah. and he became also very angry and resentful of his mother even though she was the one who stayed because he had to believe
0: that she had somehow driven his father away you know how that goes yeah of course also your kid like how are you supposed to put all this together
1: yeah there was just uh, no way he could cope with this and it sounds like he kind of buried it deep down and never really addressed it so it okay. it will come out in myriad ways throughout this episode you'll see how the threat of rejection and abandonment really puts him into a tailspin. Okay. And his mother said that though he was really naturally smart, he was hard – it was like very hard for him to stay on track and to stay motivated. He did have a mentor in high school who was helping keep him on track and had promised him that if he did like X, Y, and Z, he could get into this type of four-year college, private college. And when he was rejected from that college – He felt further rejected by his mentor, like he had been betrayed again. So he was just a pretty angry youth in general. And he did do a a couple like half-hearted community college courses, but he didn't seem happy with it. And then his mother said he just kind of disappeared. Oh, He just disappeared out of her life. He had been living with her. He was just kind of gone. And this wasn't the first time that he had run away. But at this point, you know, he's 19 years old not really running away anymore. He's not running away. He's an adult. He mm-hmm. can go wherever he wants. But it was concerning for Elaine because she didn't actually know where her eldest son was, you know, yeah. of course. Now, the family is Jewish. And she found out months later when Jeff finally called her that he had actually taken his savings and booked a one-way ticket to Israel where he had joined a commune called a kibbutz or was living in a commune called a kibbutz rather. And he had actually begun to train as a paratrooper in the Israeli army. Um. I mean, it's like when you hear like, you know, he like ran away or he, you know, he went off the grid. You're like, okay, he's like in the mountains. He went to California and he's on drugs and, you know, hate Ashbury or something. Yeah. You're not thinking he went to Israel and joined the army. Yeah. Whoa. And that's like so far away. (laughs) So far away. So three years later, Jeff moved back to the United States. By now, his mother, Elaine, had remarried a man named David Zach and relocated to Phoenix, Arizona. So David went on to adopt two out of three of Elaine's children, Jeff obviously being one of them, which is why his last name is Zach uh-huh. and not Lieberman, which was his birth father's name. Okay. Yeah, I guess the third kid was kind of like, I don't know, I like Lieberman and I'm an adult, you don't need to adopt me. Yeah. <laughs> but... Jeff had a really, really good relationship with David, and it did, I think, help in in mending some of those father issue feelings, you know? For sure. So Elaine was both impressed by and concerned for her son. Jeff always seemed to have a hard time with conflict. He had a hard time keeping a job and just generally finding his path in life. Despite being natively smart, like I said, and charismatic, he just had these issues figuring out what he wanted to do. Okay. He was also spoke six languages fluently. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's a lot. That's, he's, like, skilled. He's really, really smart. He yeah. spoke English, Hebrew, Arabic, Russian, German, and Spanish. Yeah, that's extremely impressive. Yeah, the CIA should have uh, scooped him up, you know? Yeah. So his mother, Elaine, said he had the most phenomenal personality when he wanted— But he could be manic too. He had the potential to do whatever he wanted. He could have been someone but was, of course, held back by these flaws, fears, and things he could not face, not to mention the sadness over his dad. Yeah. Well, in Phoenix in 1986, Jeff met Bonnie. He was working as a headhunter, which if you guys are outside the United States, and this is like a, a local colloquialism, it's um, an employment recruiter, essentially.
0: An actual headhunter. Because a headhunter sounds weird. Well, yeah, and we're talking on a murder podcast. Yeah, so it does sound <laughs> It's good to clarify. just <laughs> wanted to clarify. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And Bonnie was working for a cable television company. They they fell in love pretty quick. It was an instant connection. And they wed two years later. By the time they were married, they had moved to Boulder, Colorado, which was actually a place of great joy for their marriage. They had a, a really good time in Boulder. While they were in Colorado, Jeff got his stockbroker's license and the couple moved to San Diego where he had an opportunity to work at a brokerage firm. It was in San Diego that they had their son, Ashton, and later it would come to light that the brokerage firm was actually kind of a scam operation. Oh, no. Yeah. So I guess Jeff figured this out at some point and quit. And very shortly after he left, the owners were arrested by the feds and charged with several white-collar crimes. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. And um, Jeff was investigated a lot as well for his role in the company but ultimately cleared oh man so yeah so they're living in san diego he's out of job and this was around 1991 when bonnie's mom actually became terminally ill so they decided to move to bonnie's hometown of akron ohio to take better care of her mother After this, Jeff would spend the rest of his life kind of jumping from odd job to odd job. When he first got to Ohio, he worked in like a scrap metal business. And at the time of his death, he owned a hundred vending machines around the Akron area that he would, you know, service and take the money. Okay. So Bonnie would claim in her interview with the police later on that the trouble in their marriage began as soon as they moved to Akron. Ah. Jeff had always been a super social, outgoing guy who enjoyed nightlife, and Boulder and San Diego, especially San Diego, had given him ample opportunities to get out and have a good time, but he felt stifled in Akron. I think that they might have at the beginning been also living with Bonnie's mom and they had a very young child. So, you know, it's it's a lot for anybody. Yeah. He eventually found himself drawn to a legendary restaurant and music venue called The Tangier. The club had opened in 1947 and was now owned by the second generation in the family, a man named Ed George. One night, while three-year-old Ashton was home with a babysitter, Jeff took Bonnie out to dinner at his new favorite venue. While the two were dining and enjoying what should have been a romantic experience, Bonnie kept catching Jeff checking out this beautiful blonde woman at the bar.
0: Okay, Jeff. Not cool. Not cool. Not cool. Oh my gosh. Not cool. Like, when you have a three-year-old, too, you're still, like,
1: getting on back to your body, yourself, your life. And if she's now a permanent caregiver for her mother. I was just going to say. Can you give Bonnie a nice night out without being a creep, sir, please? Oh, no. Uh, So it gets worse. So he keeps checking out this woman, and Bonnie did say she was gorgeous. She had a, you know, perfect hourglass figure. She had this blonde hair, this bright red lipstick. She was immaculately put together, very well dressed. And he just could not take his eyes off of her. And so he finally like, you know, she kind of hit him. And he's like, what? I mean, you have to admit, she looks amazing. She looks real. That that woman's beautiful, huh? And Bonnie's like, are you serious? And so she was like a little defensive. And she told the investigators that she essentially said, well, you know, good luck, buddy. Even if you were single, she's way out of your league. You wouldn't have a chance with
0: her anyway. <laughs> so, you know, drop it, playboy. I would not be okay. I would not be okay. I would no. n- literally leave him there.
1: Especially after he was maybe involved in some shady shit and was just investigated. Like she also said that at that point they had to move a bunch of money around and like put things in his parents' name no. and stuff because they thought the feds were going to take all their money. It's she, He's already put the, the family through a little bit. So let's chill out here. Yeah. Um, at that point, though, instead of like him laughing it off, he took it as a challenge. He was like, okay, well, watch me. And he uh, got up, went over, and started hitting on the blonde woman and in front of his wife. In front of his wife who was sitting at their table eating the dinner that they had ordered. And it wasn't just even like that he like stood up, said hi, winked, and, you know, came back to his table. He ended up chatting with her for like 20 minutes while Bonnie sat at that table. Jessica,
0: I like what would you have done?
1: I mean, I would have walked out. I would have been like, I would have walked up to him and I'd be like, give me the keys. I'm going home. You can pay the bill. Bye. Find your own way home. Oh, my God. Also, what's wrong with this woman to not be like, hey, are you here with somebody? Where are you sitting? Maybe you should go back to your wife, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. But people like attention. They do. And you're going to find out that this good looking at the time 37 year old really, 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 really likes attention. Her name is (laughs) Cynthia George. (laughs) <laughs> and she was the owner ed's wife oh, of course though she didn't have an official role at the restaurant she often accompanied ed in and she was kind of like the the hostess she would d. make her ga- make yeah yeah the matrice d matrice d yeah d. <laughs> <laughs> she would make guests feel at home and she would like wear these night gowns not night gowns what i'm what am i trying like evening gowns that's what i mean <laughs> So she had these like evening gowns and she was always very well put together. M. William Phelps described the Tangier as completely booming at this time. He said that money was rolling in as if printed in the basement and Cynthia played the part of the rich wife well. She wore long gowns, expensive jewelry, and she just kind
0: of hung around the nightclub like she was an old Hollywood starlet. Yeah, that's amazing. You're an Akron babe. (laughs) Like, nothing wrong with Akron, but, like, you're in Akron, you know?
1: Yes. She was very much, like, the queen of Akron. Yes. I mean, I think she did think she was the queen of Akron, to be honest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From that day on, Bonnie ruefully told the detectives, I was nothing. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I'm feeling for her so hard. Really sad. And then this was 10 years prior to his death. So when she's getting (sighs) interviewed, this had happened a decade earlier and she was still clearly feeling it. Jeff began to secretly communicate with Cynthia after that night and the illicit couple made duplicitous plans to involve their families in the affair. What do you mean? So essentially what happened was that body caught him on the phone with Cindy and he was like, oh, actually she's just inviting our family over because they had children as well to go to the George's mansion and hang out. And so when he was caught, he instead of stopped the affair, he doubled down and was like, we're all gonna be best friends, right? Wow. It's it's bad. I would be real, real freaking pissed. Um. So yes, they started doing stuff together. I mean, they got so close as family friends that they were spending birthdays and
0: holidays together. Okay, that's so gross. Hmm.
1: So Bonnie obviously initially had reservations about what her husband's interest in Cindy was. But she did have to admit after a little while, the Georges were great hosts and Cindy was nice to her, even friendly. So they seemed like they really were genuinely friends. And Cynthia also convinced Ed to pay Jeff for odd jobs at their mansion and the Tangier. And the money was very much needed because after that whole mess in San Diego, Jeff had then turned around and put their entire $150,000 savings Into the stock market and he made, you know, he made some really, really bad calls and he ended up losing everything. So they have no savings. He at the time did not have a a real like nine to five, not nine to five, just any job at all, you know? So she was like, well, we became friends with them, but we also needed the money. So Jeff's kind of working for the Georges at, at this point as well. That works in
0: his favor, though, too. You know what I mean?
1: Because he can be with her all the time. He can be with her at the mansion alone. When Ed's at the restaurant, he can go to the restaurant with her. And Bonnie said that from then on, Jeff and Cindy started doing all sorts of things together. They would go bike riding together. They were together a lot, a suspicious amount of time. And they were even calling each other several times a day. And Jeff would talk to Cindy right in front of Bonnie. Like he wasn't making any secret of their relationship whatsoever. And when Bonnie complained about it, he would just be like, you know, kind of gaslighty. Like, you're being crazy. She's my friend. She's like a counselor and a confidant. Am I not allowed to have female friends? Like, you're friends with her too. You're friends with her family. Why don't you just relax? They
0: love a gaslight in the 2000s. I've watched movies recently where it's like, blatant gaslighting, like blatant gaslighting. And it's like supposed to be charming. And I'm like, yes, yes. This yes. is so and fucked I mean, up. They did technically
1: have a word for it. The gaslighting came from a movie in the 1930s called Gaslight, where literally a husband is doing stuff like like flickering lights and stuff. And then when she's like, did you see that? He's like, no, because he's yep. trying to make her feel yep. crazy. Yep. Yeah. So there was a word for it, but we never talked about it, I feel like, in no. the early 2000s. It wasn't in the common vernacular. No. Yeah. It's crazy. So she was like, I, I mean, I guess I have to take my my instincts and my gut and just put it in the backseat because he says I'm crazy, you know? We need to get her a shirt. We do need to get Bonnie a shirt. So yeah. So she she did know better. And so one night... He was talking on the phone to Cindy. She was listening from the next (sighs) room. He wasn't exactly trying to hide it. But she heard him suggest that they meet up at a hotel. And he said a specific one. So she knew where he was going. And, you know, he told her he was going to go and, like, do some work at the restaurant that night. She knew he wasn't. And she surreptitiously got a babysitter and went to the hotel herself and sat in the lobby waiting for them to either come in or come out oh my god. Sickening. Mm -hmm. And she did end up seeing them come in together. And while they weren't like making out, it was clear that they were a couple. They were holding hands. And she said they were like staring into each other's eyes like teenagers. (sighs)
0: So at that point, she said,
1: I was like trying to like take the high road. I was so angry. I couldn't even speak. So like She wanted them to see her. She wanted them to know that she saw them, but she didn't even really want to talk to them. So she literally just stood up, walked basically straight up to them, looked them both in the eye, and then just like went out to the parking lot. Class. Yeah, she has a lot of class. And at that point, she thought her husband was going to run after her because that's what you would assume. It's what I would assume. And she sits in the parking lot and he doesn't come and he doesn't call her. And and she just starts crying and she cries herself all the way home. And he didn't come home until four in the morning. Oh my God. Yeah. And when she's telling this to the detective, she's like, that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was that later on, I was hearing them on the phone again. And I knew that he was talking to Cindy and he said, and I quote, I can't get enough of being inside of you. Vomit. And he just did a silent gag, so she had to come back and say vomit because she knew you guys couldn't see it. Uh, Yeah. And when he got off the phone, Bonnie lit into him about it. Like, I heard you. I know you're 100% having an affair. How dare you? And he's like, what are you talking about? I wasn't even talking to Cindy. I don't know what you heard me say. I was talking to some guy. Like, you must be like completely crazy. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Honestly, that's like worse than reading it in a text. Ugh. Hearing he, it? She heard it. Yeah. Uh, and what's her husband doing? What's Cindy's husband doing? He's
1: apparently at the restaurant at this point. They said that he was constantly there. He was constantly working. And they do have um quite a few children. I'm going to get into their whole okay. history in a little bit. And later on, a nanny of the Georges would say that, well, Cindy was not so present in the children's lives. Ed really was. Even though he was busy running the Tangier, he also yeah. was a very present father.
0: So. Okay. He's with the kids. He's running the business. And they're not like kicking it anymore, like socially right now, right? They are.
1: They're still kind of kicking it at this point. But Bonnie says that recently, like in the last few months, they had stopped completely. She said, we've stopped socializing with the Georges whatsoever. She said that she believed that the extramarital affair must have ended because Jeff was in a really bad mood. And now when she heard him talking on the phone to Cindy... They were not whispering sweet nothings anymore. Jeff actually had become kind of abusive and angry towards Cindy. So Bonnie assumed that Cindy had ended the relationship finally after years and that Jeff wasn't taking it well. She told the detectives, just like his mother would later tell the detectives, that Jeff was very cruel when faced with rejection because of, you know, what had happened in his past. He had a strong reaction to what he perceived as abandonment. And she said that in the past, because of this affair with Cindy, she had actually attempted to leave him and she had asked for a divorce before. But every single time he had said that if she tried to divorce him or leave him, that he would take Ashton and he would take the child to Israel. And Jeff had dual citizenship with Israel, at least I I believe it was suggested that he did. And I did look this up. Israel will not extradite its own citizens back to the United States. So it was a very real fear that Jeff could take her child to Israel and she would not be able to find him or get him back because they weren't going to do anything about it, you know? Yeah, that's so fucked up. Yeah. So speaking of Ashton, the articulate 13-year-old had lots to say about who could have potentially murdered his father. That's not a good sign. That's not a good sign that he knows this. No. Um, He had acknowledged his parents' angry spat on the morning of Jeff's murder, saying that he too had regrettably also fought with his dad. I guess that the fight had kind of started over like a, a you know, a teenage spat between father and son. Then obviously the mom got involved to protect her son and then they fought really badly. You know, it was, it was just something that had Turned into a whole family argument. He said that he also knew about his father's relationship with Cindy George. Oh, it's
0: not ideal for a 13-year-old boy.
1: No, and he had known it from a fairly early age. Obviously, the affair had started when he was three years old. Yeah. And he, his dad often brought him over to the Georges to play with the other children who... So fucked up. Yeah, were similar in age, you know. So he knew kind of all about this. Also, Bonnie at the time was the breadwinner for the family. She still was at the time of the death. She was a real estate agent. So she's probably working and, you know, they've got a little kid and he's going over to the Georges with his dad. So he did know about the relationship. He also confirmed Bonnie's belief that the affair had ended. He wasn't seeing the kids anymore. He wasn't going with his dad to see the Georges. They weren't going to the Tangier anymore. So he was also under the impression that something had happened and that something had happened between his father and Cindy George. While explaining what he knew about his dad and Cindy's relationship, Ashton said something else that was really shocking. He told the police that while he and his father had been watching a 2020 episode in which a man had hired a hitman to kill someone he knew, Jeff had leaned over and said to Ashton, if anything ever happens to me, tell the cops to look at Ed George. He's got a lot of money and he can afford to hire someone. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. Also, he's like just 13. So when did you say this? To your kid, this is too much for a preteen teen. Just yeah, teen, you know? could you imagine? Like, I would be up all night worried. When asked if his father had any other enemies, Ashton admitted that Jeff had fallen out with two men. One was a family friend, and the other was an assistant coach on Ashton's peewee football team. Oh my God. The two men had a contracting business and they were supposed to have done a siding job for the Zacks, but something had gone bitterly wrong. So Jeff had told Ashton that these men had taken a $6,200 check and never completed the work they were supposed to. The men claimed that they had done some of the work but had never been compensated and obviously quit the project because they weren't getting paid. Yeah, so Ashton's explaining that these guys were really, really, really mad at his dad and that after some sort of game or practice, he had actually witnessed the assistant coach arguing with his father and the assistant coach had said to Jeff, quote, I'll rip your throat out with a hot butter knife.
0: Um, sir, this is a peewee football game, sir. The detail, the hot butter knife. really specific. It is.
1: So by that time, Bonnie's brother had come to the house to support his sister and nephew, obviously. And they also interviewed him while he was there. And he told the police that he knew that Jeff had been actually getting harassed mysteriously for the last few weeks before his death. He said that he believed it had started With people smashing and vandalizing only his vending machines. So he seemed targeted. Yep. And that there was a man leaving threatening voicemails on his cell phone and home answering machine. Now, Bonnie said that they mostly deleted these messages. She had no idea who was leaving them. But she did have one voicemail saved on their answering machine. So she was able to give that to the police. Now. Ashton, Bonnie, and Bonnie's brother all did not recognize the voice of the man. So it was not Ed George, and it was not those two family friends. They did not think it was. Okay. So they left the exhausted grieving, and in Bonnie's case, I mean, she's still not cleared, potentially murderous Zach family alone. The detectives reconvened to discuss what the other officers, you know, the crime scene people had found at BJ's. And unfortunately, the physical evidence was not that great. Okay. Well, they were lucky enough to recover the bullet that had pierced Jeff's cheek. It had actually gone through one window into his cheek, out the back of his head, and then out the other window and landed in the parking lot. And a very eagle-eyed officer had kind of mentally followed the trajectory and discovered the bullet. Thank goodness. Whoa. And there had been security cameras facing, you know, the gas kiosk, obviously. But unfortunately, the one that was trained on the exact area and pump that Jeff had been in was kind of malfunctioning. So the best thing that they had was this very, very grainy footage. It wasn't super duper helpful. And while they did have a lot of eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable. And the killer had been completely covered from head to toe. There was one witness who claimed, though, to have seen the person's hands, and the hands were Caucasian. So they believe now they're looking for either a white woman or a white male. Okay. So the police canvassed the BJ's employees and discovered kind of exactly what the detectives were discovering at Bonnie and Ashton's, that their murder victim was no angel, and that was putting it lightly. Oh, God. So... One of the BJ's managers told the police that Jeff had been a regular at the discount wholesale club who often made the young female employees uncomfortable with his unwanted advances. My God, that's so gross. It's worse. It gets worse. It gets worse. There was one (sighs) underage teenage girl who was like, you know, the register person. (laughs) <laughs> and he always tried to get in her line and always tried to talk to her. And she hadn't been
0: working and there very stuck long. you're there when you are you're operating the register. When,
1: yeah. And it was, I would not say she's like naive. She's a teenager. And so he kept bothering her to get her phone number. And she eventually did give him her cell phone number. And immediately he started calling her and saying sexual things to her to the point where she felt, really uncomfortable. And her father found out about it. Her father got the BJ's management involved. He threatened Jeff himself. Of course he did. It's his teenage daughter. Yeah. And there was some sort of at least verbal confrontation between these two men. And subsequently, Jeff was banned from entering the actual wholesale club, though clearly he could still get gas there. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you would think that you'd walk into that BJ's and you'd be like holding up a photo and going, hey, you know, this guy was getting gas out front. Do you know him? Normal people would be like, no, I don't know every single guy who comes in here. It's a BJ's wholesale club. There's like a million people who go to these places. Instead, they're like, oh, we know him. Yeah. Although that is not what I want to be known for at a BJ's wholesale club.
0: (laughs) What, hitting on a teenager?
1: no this is so really. gross could you
0: imagine getting banned from a bj's because you're trying to get the phone number of a teenage girl oh
1: it's like, not good you know we try to on this show be very respectful of murder victims but we're gonna always tell it to you straight guys we promise <sighs> that You know, you know how those there's all those memes about true crime. They're like, she lit up a room. He was the most generous man in the world. Well,
0: this is not that episode. So the investigators also had, if if not only the people at BJ's are saying this, but your loved ones are saying this, this is not a good starting. You're not at a good starting peg. You're no, you're also interviewed a rabbi that he went
1: to counseling with and the rabbi said he started coming to counseling because of a sexual harassment issue. And I do not know if that was this same issue or a different sexual harassment issue. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. No. So the investigators had very little physical evidence to go on and they had about a million people who wanted this guy dead. So there's going to be, A lot to wade through. So let's, let's go back and let's go over the suspects and theories that the detectives are grappling
0: with currently. They definitely need a cork board and some like push pins.
1: (laughs) We do for this one. Guys, I'm telling you, it's a real whodunit because there's a whole (laughs) cast of suspects here. The number one suspect is always the spouse. So Bonnie's act despised her husband's actions and cruelty over the last decade of their marriage. Yeah. She also lived under the threat of Jeff taking away their only child. Yeah. I mean, that is a big motivation to protect your child. As I recall, I think that there was also a life insurance policy, but it was not like an exorbitant one or one that had just previously, you know, in the last couple of days been Increased. (laughs) Increased, yeah. So we've got Bonnie. Number two, they have Ed George. Had Ed George finally discovered the long-running affair? Is that why it seemed like Cindy had broken it off with Jeff? Did maybe Ed find out and Cindy broke it off and Jeff wasn't handling it? And then you can imagine that if you're Ed, you're already pissed off and then this guy won't leave your wife alone? Yeah. He's connected. He's wealthy. It seemed like he had an alibi. However, he could have certainly paid somebody off.
0: he's not doing the dirty work.
1: No. And speaking of somebody else who probably didn't do the dirty work but is still a suspect, we've got Cindy George. Maybe Jeff had threatened to out her. Maybe... Ed George didn't know. Maybe he said, you know what? If you won't come back to me, I'm going to go and tell your husband we've been having an affair for the last decade, and I'm going to tell everybody in Akron Society that you were having an affair with me, and you're not the
0: queen of Akron. Yeah, you know? but has she, not, she didn't have an affair with anyone else. It was just him. Uh, that is up for debate. Okay. Um, You know, at this time,
1: there were some employees we're going to talk about that believe she Kind of let flirtation roll into affairs, but there was no concrete evidence. Okay. This is the only one we know for sure at this point. Uh, there's also number four, the family friend and Wee football coach who had <laughs> publicly threatened to slice Jeff's throat with a butter knife. There's also, of course, number five, the father of the teenage girl that Jeff had stalked and sexually harassed. You know, you can't really blame a father if he wants to get rid of the predator, you know. There's number six, the mysterious voicemail lever. (laughs) So like we said, Bonnie and Ashton said it wasn't Ed George and it wasn't anyone else's voice that they recognized. So had Jeff pissed off somebody else that we don't even know about yet? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, theory number seven, what if the answer was much simpler than it appeared? Jeff was known to have a little bit of a temper. What if the incident was simply a road rage case gone horribly wrong? He cut the wrong motorcyclist off the motorcyclist was carrying, followed him to the gas station and said, F you, buddy, and shot him right in the face. I mean, also very possible. Oh, man. Yeah, I do not know if, I've, if we've ever covered a case or if I even have heard of a true crime case where a murder victim had so many people who disliked him.
0: Jesse, do you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest
1: challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe
0: the tools they need to succeed. It really does make everything so simple for small business owners, everything from designing an entire e-commerce website to being able to ship globally with a bunch of different shipping carriers. I mean, it really consolidates all of the questions and concerns with starting up a business and takes care of it in one place for you.
1: With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook,
0: Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go
1: to shopify.com lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get
0: full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. Andy, I love the convenience of online shopping, but sometimes that convenience comes with caveats. Absolutely. Online shopping can be a total mystery, especially when it comes to something like shoes. Yeah, like how accurate is the sizing? Are they actually as comfortable as they look? And what happens if I want to send them back? Well, Rothy's takes the guesswork out of shoe shopping with comfort right out of the box and super easy and free returns and exchanges.
1: From the unbeatable comfort to the fact that you can wash them, what more evidence do you need that Rothy's Shoes checks every box?
0: They are comfortable. They look amazing styled online. I mean, it gives you so many ideas of how to wear them. I just loved shopping for them on their site and getting them shipped was super easy as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. I love having something so stylish and so easy easy in my life. So like when I'm writing our podcast, guys, and all of a sudden I realize (laughs) that I need to pick up my daughter in five minutes flat, I just slip them on and immediately look so put together for preschool pickup. I'm definitely like the coolest mom around. (laughs) Most stylish for sure.
0: (laughs) Solve the case of your next favorite spring shoe with Rothy's. Plus, get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash lovemurder. That's $20 off at com slash lovemurder. So the investigators' gut instincts told them that the killer,
1: either the killer himself or, you know, the money behind the hitman was Ed George. They were kind of focused on Ed from the beginning. So they tried to interview both him and his wife, Cindy, but the two lawyered up Pretty darn fast as you can yeah. do when you have millions of dollars. Yes. Yes. So as a workaround, they started building a more complete background on Jeff and they started carefully excluding the other suspects. So they ended up deciding that it wasn't a road rage incident because they could tell even though the footage was grainy that the motorcyclist and Jeff had not exchanged words at all. And usually in a road rage incident, that person wants to get the last word. Yeah, or there's some middle finger out the window. There's some reaction. There's some like, remember when you cut me off, buddy? And then, yeah. then there's a response. You know, yeah. they usually don't just act immediately like that. Yeah. yeah. So they they did not think. Also, it was kind of like the way the um, motorcyclist came in. It almost seemed like they knew where Jeff Zach was going, and they were kind of like anticipating him okay. rolling into the gas station. So it, it seemed like almost like they were waiting a little bit. Not too long. They hadn't been there that much longer than him, but it, it did seem like it was on purpose, you know? Okay. Like he hadn't followed him. Uh, next, they did eliminate Bonnie, though she was looking pretty good for it for a while because she was pissed. I mean, she was honest in these interviews and she had a lot of reasons to be angry with this man. And apparently she did take a couple of polygraphs and some of those answers got flagged for deception. Okay. So for a while they were thinking that maybe it was Bonnie, but she did end up having a pretty rock solid alibi and she had sat through hours and hours of interrogation and polygraph testing without ever bringing up an attorney or bringing in an attorney. Okay. She seemed pretty confident that it was not her and
0: they did end up believing her. I don't think that not bringing in an attorney is means that you're not guilty though.
1: No, it just meant, you know, as far as if the police have somebody that like immediately lawyers up versus somebody who doesn't maybe even register really. <laughs> yeah. That they're a suspect, you know, because she knows that her husband died and maybe in the back of her head, they think, you know, maybe she did it. But I think that she was actually trying to aid the investigation insofar as like giving them all the information about who else it could possibly be. And yep. that came across as angry because he had hurt her and other people. Yeah. But she wasn't thinking that they were going to end up looking at her because she knew she hadn't done it, you know? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so she was very helpful and participatory. And I can totally understand why she might have gotten some of the questions a little off because this is a very complicated situation. I mean, if they're gauging the response to the questions as, you know, having an emotional reaction, she could go through feelings of anger and extreme emotion and her heart raising just being asked these questions, being put in this position. Yeah by her deceased husband because of something God knows what he did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they end up completely eliminating Bonnie, long story short. Okay. They thoroughly investigated and polygraphed and ended up actually excluding also the two men who had had the confrontation with Jeff Sack about the siding job. And while they were interrogating these guys, they found out that the fight was not actually about the siding job. They had actually... Come to a resolution about that. It had been heated, but they had figured it out. They were moving forward. But during a different exchange, and that was apparently the one that Ashton witnessed, for some reason, Jeff told one of the men that he had fucked his wife in the ass.
0: Oh my God.
1: Now, I don't necessarily think that was true. I think that Jeff said it to make the other guy angry. That is my read on (laughs) it. But with this guy, who knows? Anything's possible.
0: So, yes, yeah, so the detectives are like, what is going on with this guy? You know, he's like literally what's it called when you're like, I guess he's like hot tempered, huh? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Everything's like very close to the surface with him. Yeah.
1: The teenage girl's father was excluded as well. And there was other there was like some crazy other theories floating around out there. Apparently early on in their marriage, Bonnie's father had gotten a P.I. to do a background check on Jeff. And they found out that he was guilty of pandering, which is technically to solicit customers for a sex worker. So he wasn't <laughs> him,
0: apparently, at some
1: point. Jeez Louise. So so his her father clearly wasn't thrilled about this guy. She had married him anyway, obviously. And so there was some conjecture that Bonnie's dad had put out a hit on him that turned out to be false as well there was some evidence that Jeff had dabbled with illegally selling weapons. Oh my
0: God.
1: Yeah, they had to follow that out. There was rumors that he was involved in either an Arab or Russian mafia, which is, is that a thing in Akron? I mean, I don't know. And it was also probably not helped by the fact that he spoke those languages as well, you know? But after they kind of went through all of this, which you can imagine took weeks and months to exclude all of these people. All roads just kept coming back to the Georges. Okay. Let's talk about this potentially deadly duo, shall we? Please enlighten me. Cynthia May Rohr was born one of four children in a conservative Catholic home in rural Ohio. Cindy herself claimed that she had grown up dirt poor. She apparently made a big hay about how horrifically poor she had been growing up. But her neighbors and her family members were like, well, we didn't have a lot of money. And like the kids had to share bedrooms in our tiny ranch house. But like she had food, she had clothes. Like we're not talking about poverty here, Miss Cindy. (gasps) Yeah. It, she was fine. It was not that bad. But she always did when she was because she was like really like I said, Miss Society. They were interviewed by Akron newspapers. They put on benefits at the Tangier. She was well known, and she did say publicly, like, "Oh, I grew up dirt poor. I wasn't always like this." You know, um, Cindy grew up and was a cheerleader, and she dreamed of one day becoming Miss America. Oh, which though that was her big lofty dream which by the way in 2001 which is the same year that the murder took place she when she was 46 years old she actually kind of somewhat i guess adjacently accomplished this dream because she won third runner up at the Misses Ohio pageant <laughs> it's
0: third runner up fourth place yes that's fourth that's worthless. So you don't get, you get, hey, but she got on that. You get a ribbon. She got on that podium. You get a ribbon at that point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think she got a ribbon. Maybe she got a carnation, you know? Oh my God. After high school, she worked at an optical company and then at a US Airways VIP lounge in Pittsburgh. And this was the mid to late 70s. So I'm just kind of imagining she's got that like Pan Am mini skirt with the boots going on while she's like waiting on these guys with polyester leisure suits. <laughs> That's what I'm imagining. And she's cute. She's real cute. Cindy, I would say the closest celebrity I can think is maybe like a Diane Lane. Oh, really? Yeah, she's very pretty. She's very petite, thin, blonde, pretty, pretty face. While she's working at this like VIP lounge in Pittsburgh or right around that time, it seems like she found herself in Akron, Ohio, and I'm not really sure what the opportunity there was. But while she was there, she went to the Tangier. And I heard in some of my sources that she was kind of just like on the dance floor. She was having a a club night out. Okay. But I also heard from another source that she was actually auditioning for a job in the cabaret as a dancer. Okay, Either way, she was dancing when Ed George, the owner, spotted 23-year-old Cindy shaking her thang. And if she was indeed auditioning for a job, she did not get that gig, but she perhaps got a far more lucrative position as Ed's girlfriend and future wife. Yeah, I'd say. So Ed's father had opened the Tangier in 1947, and it had been a staple of the Akron social scene ever since. M. William Phelps described it as the Copa Cabana of the area. That's exactly how I imagined it. 100%. Yeah. It's It's big, too. Like, I was imagining, like... I was imagining kind of like Coochie Coochie, like the place we used to go to in Cambridge, like, you know, because it was kind of like restaurant, but also music venue-y, you know, that type of vibe. But this place was gigantic and it was like big, like big acts would roll through, you know, and come through this place. And it was a big, big party scene. In 1976, Ed Sr. passed away and left it to Ed R. Ed to run the family business And Ed was very prepared. He was a very serious man. He had gone to the best private school in the area. He had studied business administration at Michigan State as well as John Carroll University. He had spent his entire life preparing to take over the family business. In 1979, business was better than ever due to his hard work, and that is when 39-year-old Ed met spirited, wild, and willowy 23-year-old Cindy on that dance floor. Now, Ed had always been a proud bachelor and a workaholic. He had never really settled down before, and as people knew him, it was not a priority. He he thought maybe he'd have a family someday, but it was not foremost on his mind. Okay. So everyone was kind of surprised at how quickly he fell for Cindy. I mean, she had him wrapped around her finger fairly early. And like within a few weeks of them dating, Cindy was like swanning around the Tangier like she was already his wife. Yeah. Like this was her restaurant. I mean, she had a lot of confidence, let's say. So after nearly six years of dating in 1984, the May-December couple, which I guess it's kind of more like May-October, they're only 15 years apart, ended up getting married in a huge Catholic cathedral in front of 500 guests. Yes, I don't even know if I know 500 people in real life. I definitely don't. No. That's so insane. It was a big, expensive wedding. I mean, it was full. She was having like the Princess die wedding yep, moment, yep, yep, you yep. know, the, the dress. And apparently they had like a 65-piece choir at the ceremony. <laughs> and then when they left the church, they got into this like white stretch limo that had like the flowers and cans, you know, tied to the tailpipe. And at some point... They switched to a white horse-drawn carriage, and that was what brought them into the Tangier where they were holding the reception on a Monday so they didn't lose the weekend business. So essentially, after the wedding, they lived together in the condominium they had been living together in before for a little while, but then they wanted to grow, they wanted to have kids, and they eventually bought a very, very large farm and house and got busy having children, going on to have seven children. total. Uh. I mean, they had the money for it. I mean, how do you birth also, seven children
0: out of your vagina?
1: Well, like I don't technically. Technically, she birthed six out of her vagina, although I don't know if she might have had a C-section, and one was
0: adopted. They did adopt one. Okay, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So according to M. William Phelps' book, If Looks Could Kill, this is what Ed had to say about his new wife and new life. In 1988, in one of the many articles written about Ed and the Tangier The Akron Beacon Journal asked Ed about his life, noting that he and Cynthia, who had lived in a condominium since tying the knot, built a large farm on a 126-acre lot of farmland that Ed had owned. I don't know what the hell is going on, he told the reporter. My wife says she needed room to breathe. Well, we're going to have a lot of room to breathe now. The mansion was 8,000 square feet. The mansion or the plot of land? The plot of land was 126 acres, also ginormous, and the house that they built upon it was 8,000 square feet. That's, that's insane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he's like, "So eight, so
1: 126 acres is 8,000 square feet, right? Is that the math we're doing here?" <laughs> She's like, "Cause that's ludicrous."
0: <laughs> wow! Wowie.
1: <sighs> yeah. So that's 126 acres is bigger than my parents' farm. For wow. My So later in the same article, Ed added, I used to be a male chauvinist. Now I have three women, a wife and two daughters at home. And whatever they tell me to do, that's what I do. I married a woman that doesn't let you get away with anything. I change diapers and I dress the kids. You know, sometimes I make mistakes and put their clothes on backwards or inside out. But I'm learning. That's cute. I'm now doing all of these other things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm now doing all these other things that I used to think I would never do. Ed embodied the change. He loved being a father and husband. And at this point, he and Cynthia really did have a perfect life. They had healthy children, a booming business. I mean, the Tangier was raking it in in the, like, 70s, 80s, 90s. They had a humongous house, and they had more money than they ever needed, which is probably why they, you know, kept having children. Over the years, the Tangier's employers reported that Cindy grew – increasingly flirtatious with some of their patrons. She seemed a little too cozy with some of the regulars, but there was never any official confirmation that she was truly having an affair. Like they weren't catching her in the coat closet with some guy, you know? Yeah. Now it certainly seemed like she had with Mr. Zach, of course, but employees and friends when interviewed by the police said that despite all of her flirtatiousness, and the rumors of infidelity, George and Cindy always seemed very solid. Okay. Whether it was just Ed being consumed with his own business and being, you know, a busy father and not noticing, or whether he didn't care. He's like, that's my wife's personality. She's flirtatious, yep. you know? For whatever reason, everybody said that they never picked up on any tension in their marriage at okay. all. So yeah, maybe he just missed, missed it too. Who knows? But there was um, a really big thing that Ed George may have missed. And the police certainly were not. In a George family photo provided by Bonnie, the detectives were struck by how much five out of the seven children seemed to favor Ed's Lebanese heritage. Of course, there was one child who was adopted, but that means that one of their genetic children did not look like the other.
0: One of these things is not like the other. And it was the youngest <laughs> oh, one. Oh no!
1: Oh no! Mm-hmm. So while they were getting stonewalled by the George's attorneys, they were allowed to subpoena. They were, you know, given a subpoena for DNA evidence so that they could DNA test the youngest child and find out who the daddy was. Did Ed have any concerns? So nobody was crazy about this. Ed wasn't crazy about it. You know, everything came through their attorney. So
0: the police did not know what his
1: personal reaction (laughs) was. At this point, it's good
0: that they actually had attorneys. If you're going to involve DNA testing my child, you know what I mean? 100%.
1: Yeah, this became a a scene, though, with Cindy. Cindy violently did not want them to test the DNA for obvious reasons. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, they could, it was a court order, so they had to do it. And one of the detectives interviewed in M. William Phelps' book said that it was a a real nightmare trying to get this child's DNA. So they had to bring the child to, you know, the lab. And I think it was like in a hospital setting. And how old was the baby? Seven. Oh, God. And Cindy was telling the child, this small child, they're going to hurt you. Don't let them touch you. It's going to hurt badly. You need to fight them off. Like, so while they're, like, participating, technically they had produced the child, she is encouraging the child to fight with the people trying to get the cheek swab to the point where the detective finally pushed her out of the room and shut the door. And the child's father, Ed, was still in the room. And Ed was just like, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what to do with her. Just, you know, get the get the evidence. Who cares? Whatever.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Poor so, Ed, too, though. And and Cindy was, like, screaming from the other side of the the door. So, of course, this child was traumatized. So they did get the the cheek swab, and while they were waiting for the results, they interviewed Jeff's mother, who confirmed that she had known about the affair with Cindy. She also gave them some of the background information that I talked about, and she said that Jeff had not really hidden the fact that he was having a long term affair from his parents, although it, it they didn't want to hear about it. So she's like, "I do know it was happening. I tried to know as little as possible about it, you know." Okay. They also uncovered yet another mistress of Jeff's. He had adopted another woman. Yeah. Apparently, at some point, Cindy had given him the boot, and he had recently, recently met another woman. Apparently, he flew out to Phoenix to visit his parents for Mother's Day. So that's just like one month before his death. And he met a married woman on the plane, and after he went to Phoenix, they made plans—this must have been some good plane ride—to meet for a week in Vegas, and they stayed in bed together for, like, the entire week in Vegas, apparently fell in love. This is so gross, but does not surprise me. It tracks. It tracks. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And she told the investigators that they had been making plans to leave their spouses for one another and that there was real potential in their relationship— And that even once while they were having this week-long tryst, he called his son and put this woman on the phone with his son. (sighs) I mean, let's go back to thinking that Bonnie's the
0: number one suspect because I would kill him if he did that to my child. (laughs) Wow. That's like, it's just so sad thinking about how much a couple therapy sessions could have helped him. I know, like I literally, know. he was
1: always looking for some sort of love, some thing he wasn't getting, and and more was never yeah. enough, and, and then just never enough for this literally guy.
0: Literally recycling that into his kid.
1: Yeah. So this this other woman said that she knew about his affair with Cindy. He knew she knew that it was long term, and that she did say that there was like a hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy because he had like brought it up somehow, like he was going to like sign it over to her, which that didn't materialize. Why would you even talk about that on a one week long tryst? I I mean, I guess she said they were planning a future together. I also, I think that it was because when you get a life insurance policy or or, or when you have one, you have to occasionally get physicals done. And they made Jeff do a like an STD panel and so I guess he slept with her unprotected and was like do I have to do another like STD panel for my life insurance now
0: which like maybe was like
1: his maybe that was like just his weird way of saying do I need to be concerned I don't know okay I cannot yeah so he's so reckless I would say Tris in Vegas. Condoms are your friends. <laughs> Condom. You want if you're going to do a Tris in Vegas. Let's let's you put the, the your friends raincoat on there.
0: when you're having <laughs> yeah. sex with strangers. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
1: condoms are always your friends in general. <laughs> but like certainly, if you're having sex with a stranger in Vegas, please. Uh, so yeah, so there's this whole new woman, and the crazy thing is that she said because they didn't have any friends in common and they're you know this is prior to social media she didn't know he died she just thought he like ghosted her until she like literally looked up Akron news and like searched his name to find out what was going on and found out that he had been murdered um, that's a crazy story i mean i don't know if she ended up leaving her husband and moving on but that's that's a wake up call right yeah. there Oh, and one more thing. He did tell her that he was worried about his life. Although she said he was, like, he was kind of saying it in a way to, like, make him sound dangerous. Like, he lived a dangerous life. And who knows how long he was going to live. And, like, he was a bad boy, you know? And he had mentioned Ed George again. So to his 13-year-old son and to his new mistress, he did say, if I die, tell the cops to look at Ed George.
0: I feel like he's just, like, planning this Easter egg to, like, spite cindy's husband i mean
1: maybe that's entirely i would not put anything past this guy we're gonna have a fun little conspiracy theory corner after we finish the bulk of this episode because there's i have a lot of thoughts so by now they've gotten the results back from the dna test and lo and behold shocking news Jeff Zach was the biological father of the George's youngest child.
0: Now, did they just need this to prove that Cindy was having an affair with him? Yes, because they weren't getting anywhere. Um, You know, they obviously had Bonnie's
1: testimony, but she wasn't in the affair. Yeah. And, um, you know, Cindy's attorneys weren't allowing them to speak to her. So this was now proof that there had been a physical
0: affair, which is motivation. Now that I think about, like, how much sex some people, like, need to have to, like, you know, get pregnant, it's like she had to have been sleeping with both of them pretty often in order to, in order for her husband to not be like, that's strange that you're pregnant. You know what I mean? Like, oh, for sure. Or she found out she was
1: pregnant or late or something or figured out her cycle and then had sex with Ed
0: to kind of cover it up. So manipulative.
1: Yeah. And they did have seven children, but they had, I think that the adopted child was like right before the youngest child. So there was a gap, essentially, like when she met Jeff, it happened only a couple years bef- after they yeah. started having an affair. I mean, it makes sense. It seems like at least the timeline. Yeah. So now the investigators are pretty laser focused on Ed. I mean, he has the motive after discovering that his wife was unfaithful for years and even that this other man had fathered one of his children uh. who he... loved and was raising as his own, maybe he snapped. I mean, he was a very, very strong, he like moral family man. Yeah, He was, you know, they were fairly religious. They went to church every weekend. They were very involved in the Catholic church. Uh, You know, there is a theory that he decided, I mean, especially after they break it off. And it sounded like according to Bonnie that Jeff was threatening Cindy. Yeah, So maybe he's like, I'm going to protect my family. And I don't want people to know that my child isn't my child. And I need to protect that child too yeah. from Jeff. But there's only motive and means and no evidence. There's nothing. They have no physical evidence. They have no one's come forward to say like I was the George's hitman. They can't find the motorcycle at this point. They just have nothing. So there's nothing that they can do. And it's not until one full year after Jeff's murder that a witness finally comes forward with a tip that finally leads to something. So this person was like a criminal informant, and they said that they knew a 40-year-old woman named Christine Todaro, who had told this person that her ex-husband, who was a man named John Zafino, was not only an abusive and frightening POS, but... He had also told his now ex-wife that he had taken care, wink, wink, of Jeff Zach. Okay. Now, the witness was not privy to all the details. It had come up in a conversation where Christine was kind of unloading about how terrible her ex-husband was and that he was dangerous and he had even killed a man, you know? So the witness was like, I don't know. I mean, maybe he's. The hitman for Ed George, I wouldn't put it past him. That seems like something he would do. Okay. So now they're operating under the potential lead that this is the hitman. Yep. So they end up going straight to Christine, the ex-wife. And she had very little love lost for this ex-husband who had been really abusive. John Zafino is not a good person. I mean, we, we're we talking about some of the shenanigans and the gross grossness of Jeff, but John is very very physically abusive and scary. Okay. Christine was a beautiful blonde single mother who had met and married John in the mid 90s. She said that he had had a troubled childhood in Pennsylvania with an abusive father that he equally loathed and
0: worshiped. Oh.
1: And when she met him, he already had one failed marriage under his belt as well as a son from that marriage and She said that she didn't know when she married him that the reason why his first wife had left was because of the abuse. So the marriage with Christine, John's second marriage, lasted less than two years, and it ended for good when Zafino not only attacked her own 13-year-old son from a previous relationship, but he ended up, during a different fight, breaking Christine's arm so badly that she was unable to drive and she had to get her 13-year-old son to drive her to the hospital. Oh, my God. Brutal. That poor kid. Christine's father had forced her to report John to the police at that point and file for divorce, and she did at that time. So at the time of the murder, Christine and John had been officially divorced for over a year, but they were still sporadically in touch. There were still some things to work out, apparently. They had some belongings at each other's house. It it was like they were still kind of in touch. So one night, a few weeks before Jeff Sack was killed, her ex had warned her warned christine to watch out for herself because he said that he had beat the shit out of this white-haired israeli guy named zaxom okay and he said basically i don't know if this guy is connected but he might retaliate by targeting the people i care about you're one of those people so i just wanted you to keep your head on a swivel essentially so of course christine's like Why would you attack this guy? What are you doing? You know, is he dangerous? What what is happening here, you know? And he said that the reason why he had attacked this guy was because the man was harassing his girlfriend, an older but beautiful blonde named Cindy. Yeah. So Cindy's 11 years older than John's. Okay. here. So Christine said that she had found out that her ex-husband wasn't dating just any Cindy, that he was, in fact, dating the Cynthia George from the famous Tangier restaurant. When she was at his house picking something up, he had left his cell phone on the counter and she saw Cynthia George pop up on the phone and kind of like when he grabbed it it was like, he was like, hey, baby. So she like put two oh and two God. together. Yeah. And later on, she was like alone with his cell phone again. And she even wrote down Cindy's number and gave it to the officers at that point, Whoa. which they confirmed it was Cindy George's. So yeah, at that point, she said that when she found out through, um, you know, the news that something had happened to Jeff Sack, she kind of put together everything that, you know, this white haired man, Jeff Sack, had been also dating Cindy And she thought it was all related to Ed George and the Tangier. But she said later to investigators, At first, I thought that maybe Ed George had chosen John and brought Cindy in. And it was his plan to have John be the fall guy. But as I got to know the story better, I realized that it didn't appear that Ed knew John at all.
0: Okay.
1: So at that point, the police were beginning to realize maybe... Just maybe. They had been looking at the wrong George as the mastermind all along. Always overlooking the women, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Women can take out hits too. We don't even have to. We just have to sleep with the guy once. (laughs) Through Zafino's friends and acquaintances, the police found out that his girlfriend Cindy had been paying for John's apartment, his bills, a whole new wardrobe, and even a brand new motorcycle. Stop. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sign and sealed.
1: Yes. Neighbors at the condo where Cindy was apparently paying John's rent positively identified her from a photo as John's girlfriend. Oh, my God. The two had been spotted kissing around the complex, and the neighbors believed that Cindy even spent the night occasionally investigators were completely mystified that this was Cindy's new maelstress or himbo, if you will. Because Jeff Zach, he had almost like a Clintony thing to okay. him. You know, like he might've had all that white hair, but everyone said that he had a lot of charisma. I mean, he's tall. Like there's some things going for him, yep. right? But John Zofino just, It's just, it didn't make any sense. Like, Cindy, you know, she just won Mrs. Ohio fourth (laughs) runner-up. She has a lot going for her. Yeah, she's pretty. She's kind of Mrs. Ohio. She's, you know, she's a wealthy lady with a, you know, a well-to-do husband in a, you know, big, famous restaurant. John Savino is, like, not a lot to look at. He's kind of, like, pudgy, uh, like, nothing, like, anything special, really.
0: Yeah, but you know what he does have? A gun. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> oh God, uh, I was gonna say anger issues.
1: Yes, he also has anger issues. So maybe she's attracted
0: to that type of guy. Um, it didn't seem. No, I think she just. I feel like she just knew that she was gonna be able to hire him to kill Jeff. Yeah, maybe. I think she was probably manipulating him from the beginning. That's entirely possible. I mean, we're gonna talk about this later, and
1: you know, when we do our speculation portion at the end yeah <laughs> so yeah this was just a very weird matchup which is initially why they thought he was just like a straight hit man and then they're finding out that it's all cindy no ed and the two are definitely hooking it up yeah like he was bragging to his friends too he's like oh married women do it better and like saying a bunch of girls yeah mm-hmm So they find out through his friends that Cindy had met John while she was out with some friends, like, I guess, exiting like a bar or a club, like she was like walking out. And he essentially catcalled her and it worked. Apparently, she really liked the attention. They exchanged information and they got chatting while she was still having an affair with Jeff. Okay. Now, there was later some testimony from their nanny That, number one, Cindy was never around. She was always off, like, doing stuff at the church, working out, running around with these other men. And she just wasn't home with her seven kids. But she did tell the nanny that Jeff and she were ending their relationship. Apparently, the nanny knew about the youngest child or at least suspected it. She was aware of the affair. Okay. And she would later testify that... Cindy had a black eye once towards the end of her affair with Jeff Sack, and she said that Jeff had given it to her. Oh, my God. So Jeff, I think, was losing control of Cindy, and yep. instead of handling it maturely, he tried to control her even more. So she was already really over that relationship, and when she met John, there was this guy who was younger, excited to be with her, so sexually attracted to her. He was working as a trucker at the time, but... She was like, I'll pay you whatever you're making to be available for me. So he like quit his job to essentially be her boy toy. And in The Scorned Love Kills, they they say, they allude to the fact that she liked being in control yeah. for the first time ever. She's not in control with Ed because he's, you know, the head of the household, the family, the Tangier yeah. family. And she wasn't in control with Jeff Zach, who's like completely losing yeah. it, you know? And now there was this guy who is, like kind of burly he's protective he's younger he loves her he's all over her and she can call the shots and say I'm gonna see you when I see you and like pay the bills you know so the police theorized that John whom I like I just said his ex-wife characterized as jealous and fiercely protective had decided either on his own or with Cindy pushing him to do it To kill the rival for his affection and also the person that had hurt Cindy and was still kind of stalking her. The detectives were able to find a record of John Zafino buying a bike exactly like the one used in the murder, purchased three and a half weeks before Jeff's death. On that same exact day, Cindy took out $5,500, which was almost exactly what John spent on the bike. Babes. Babes. So Christine, as well as John's neighbors, did not know what happened to the motorcycle in question. And at this point, the bike is almost more important than even finding the murder weapon. If they can connect him to this motorcycle that all of the eyewitnesses saw and they can even pick up on it on the grainy footage, you know? So they need to find this motorcycle. And one of the investigators starts doing a hit on, um, they didn't say what the site was, but they said it was like similar to eBay, but for motorcycles. So you can put in a certain like model and they'll pop up across the country where these types of motorcycles can be found. Okay. And they found one that had the same exact coloring and make and model in Pennsylvania at a used car lot. Okay. And they recalled from Christine that John had been raised in Pennsylvania and his first wife still lived in Pennsylvania. Okay, So they're like, maybe we have a connection here. So they, you know, beat feet over to Pennsylvania. And when they get there, they find out that the guy who owns this lot is the fiancé of John's first wife, Nancy. The fiancé? The fiancé. So uh, they go to Nancy, you know, how the hell did you get this motorcycle? And she said that they had been fighting because she was taking him to court for back child support. And he essentially said he had to get rid of this motorcycle, but it was valued at over $5,000. So he would give it to her if she would tell the court that he paid the back child support. And she agreed to it, not knowing that it was accessory to murder. Yeah. Her first inkling that something was kind of wrong was that he insisted on driving it in the dead of the night. (laughs) And when he arrived, he had put duct tape all over it to like cover up the lime green trim. But she didn't think it was a murder. She just knew that her ex husband was a scumbag. So she was like, I don't even know what mess you got yourself into, you know, but But thanks for my brand here. Exactly. Yeah. So she kind of also gave the investigators some more backstory on her husband, her first husband. And she said that it was a very similar to Christine's story. Like when they first got together in 1987, he had seemed really protective in a way that she found actually attractive. Like she was like one of those women that likes a man who's like, don't look at my woman and like is very protective and kind of jealous. But then that turned towards her and controlling her and being violent towards her, you know, as it very often does when you are with someone like that. So yeah, so she said she actually had to take their child and basically go into hiding with various relatives until she could get a temporary restraining order. But in the years since, they had worked on their issues enough that there was some sort of visitation occasionally with their child. So the police tried to bring Zafino in for questioning, but he too had lawyered up just like the Georges, Kel Supri's. So at this point, they asked Christine to wear a wire so that she could get this evidence, which so scary. I think is a, it's just a really bad idea to use an abused ex-wife to try to get a very violent man to say something. Yeah, no. He had basically danced around it in the past to her. Like she reported to the police that he had said things like she asked him, like, is that should I still be worried about that guy? And he goes, no, he's like not parting his hair to one side anymore. He made, she, he made some weird hair parting, or I gave him a new hair part, it sounded like, like allusion to shooting him in the head. Okay. And so they were trying to get something like that, but on tape. Okay. Um, so Christine, to her credit, and one of the detectives in the book said that she was the bravest witness they have ever had. She said she'd do it, and... At first, they made a plan to meet up in a mall because he was really paranoid. He didn't want to talk to her on the phone. He believed that they were tapping his phones. And so he's like, let's meet up at the mall. We'll walk around the mall because they won't be able to hear us there. But when she got into the parking lot of the mall, he's like, actually, I want you to get in my car. And the police were like, do not get in his car. Do not go away with him to a second location. Like he could shoot her in the car, you know? And she did. She She felt like trapped. She felt like if she just said no, he would know that she was you know, informing the police. So she got into his car. He drove her to another location, McDonald's parking lot, And she's trying to bring up Cindy because he's saying, uh, the cops are trying to talk to me. They're all over me. I had to get a lawyer. What did you say, you stupid bitch? What did you say to the cops? And she's like, what are you talking about me? It's probably your girlfriend. Your girlfriend's the one who said something. Let's talk about her. And so she kept trying to bring it back to Cindy, but he wasn't really getting it. And then he brought out this device that's apparently like a a radio frequency (laughs) picker-upper. Like it can tell essentially. (laughs) It's a radio frequency detector, an RF detector. Okay. Picker upper as what I said. Picker upper works. And so he's like, when I turn this up, turn this on and charge it, I'm going to be able to tell if you're wearing a wire. <sighs> well, she's wearing a wire in his car, this guy who has gave her a complex, like, fractured arm. So fucked up. So she ended up, like, thinking really quick, and she was, like, grabbed the the thing, like, as it was, like, booting up to, like, alert him that she had a wire on and like threw it all the way like in the back of the car and was like are you kidding me like i'm the only one you can trust like you bring the shit to me you're like coming at me like that when i'm like trying to help you like fuck you dude and she went like on the offensive yeah. you know and it worked he was just like whatever i guess you're right you know and just drove her back to the, the mall thank god But she really did. After that, she was like, I'm not doing this anymore, guys. I could have died. Yeah. And they were like 100% he could have killed you. He's already broken your arm. And maybe that was a bad idea altogether. And so unfortunately, they didn't get any real evidence from that at all. He never admitted anything close to the murder. No, it just almost killed her. It just almost killed her for no information. However, they were able to get little bit of information that was going to be helpful to them when they were interviewing John's alibi witnesses. So there's this guy who was a friend of John's, a guy named Bob Cole, and John had said through his attorneys that he had been with him during this time and this time. So the detectives go to Bob Cole and he's like, "Okay, so what time did he say he was with me? And he goes through his day and he's like, I did see John that day, but I didn't see him the times he's saying I saw him. He left by this time, not this time. They're so like, okay, that's good. We already now have a hole in his alibi. Yep. And they also asked Bob Cole, who was known to sell guns, if he had ever sold any guns to John. And Bob admitted that he had. He had sold John a 32 pistol as well as a 357 Smith & Wesson revolver. Just a couple. Just a couple. And the bullet left at the scene had been a three fifty seven caliber copper jacketed bullet. It's not looking good, John. No, it's not. Bingo, bango. we've got Zafino. Kind of rhymes. Close. I it tried. Close. It's not as good as your bingo, bango, Mary Jango. Remember that one? I do remember that one. That was a good one. Now, interestingly, he also told the investigators that he knew all about Cindy and Jeff Zack. And that apparently John had said to him, you know, this ex-boyfriend of Cindy's has been harassing her and I'm going to take care of the problem. Okay. So he'd said that, but Bob could not tell them that Cindy was involved. He was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe she could have been involved, but the way that John said it to Bob, it was like he had decided to take care of it. He was going to do it on his own volition. Yeah. Yeah. So the very next day, they arrested John Zafino for the murder of his lover's lover, Jeff Zack. And after he was arrested, the police also found out that there had been another potential attempt on Jeff Zack's life. Now, this had happened one month before Jeff's ultimate murder. Park Rangers had found Zafino's car around 925, 930 at night in a National Park parking lot. And most people aren't there that late, obviously. Yeah. And they, you know, were shining their flashlights in the car and they saw a open, empty gun case. So now they're worried that somebody went to commit suicide in the park. Okay. And so they ended up calling in extra rangers to do a search to find, you know, this potentially suicidal person and save them or find the body and, you know, get it out before like hikers and children come into the park, you know, of course. Yeah. Um, So they're in the park and they end up finding John Zafino and he says that he was trying to meet up with his married girlfriend and that they often rendezvoused in this park but he'd been waiting for her for a couple hours and she just called him to tell him she couldn't leave her husband. So he's actually going to get in his car and go home now and he does not have a gun on him. They searched him and they're like, well, why do you have an empty gun case if you weren't if you don't have the gun on you? And he's like, oh, I'm a truck driver. So I carry one around for protection. That's why it's in my car, the the cases, but then I I forgot it. I brought it into my house just the gun and I left it. So it's at home, okay? And at that point they're like, "All right, just get in your car and leave, buddy." Like, "Yeah. We
0: prefer. don't want any of
1: your business anymore. Get out of here. And don't come back here after dark. Don't do it." And so when he's arrested, the park service was like, "Hey, we know that guy. Let's tell them what we know." And based on um, interviewing Bonnie, they know that this particular park was a rendezvous spot for Jeff and Cindy. They often would go to the same exact park to ride bikes together or just get away together. Okay. So at this point, they theorize that Cindy had to be involved because there was a record of her calling Jeff that day or that night after she had been trying to ignore him and even like changed her phone number, apparently. Okay. Um. So it seemed most likely that she had tried to lure him to their meeting spot so John could kill him in the park. Got it. Okay. With no witnesses around, obviously. But Jeff didn't go. So this attempt was stymied. Eight days after the Rangers had found Zafino in the dark park, a hiker discovered a thirty-two caliber pistol exactly like the one Bob Cole had sold him. Ugh. Lastly, they did play the threatening voicemail that Bonnie Zach had given the authorities for Christine as well as some of John's, you know, friends and acquaintances. And they all confirmed that it was John Zafino's voice on the answering machine message. Oh mm-hmm. So well in custody, they tried to get John to flip on Cindy, but he was not going for it. He gave nothing up. So his trial began on February 26, 2003. The prosecution asserted that John Safino was not only in love with Cindy, but she was also funding his life and lifestyle at the time of the murder. Yep. So Cindy had a big problem, and Cindy's problems became John's problems, and he wanted to take care of that. The prosecution claimed that not only had Jeff been harassing Cindy for leaving him and was potentially abusive... The nanny would also testify to the fact that Cindy was worried just like Bonnie had been that Jeff would take the youngest child, pseudonymed Ruby in the book, to Israel and that he had also threatened to do the same to her if she would not take him back. So messed up. So protective John Zofino needed to act and he needed to act fast. So none of the threats that he had previously made to Jeff seemed to be working. because He obviously tried to threaten him first to say, stay away from her, you know? Yeah. And then after that... Zafino had decided, or Cindy had decided, that the man needed to be eliminated. So Bob Cole testified about the guns and the failed alibi. Both of John's ex-wives testified about the motorcycle and the history of violence. And the detectives testified about phone records that showed that Cindy and John had spoken several times leading up to, and especially, on the day of the murder. The defense said that all of the evidence against John was circumstantial, which is technically true. And that the only thing he was guilty of was sleeping with a married woman, which is, of course, not illegal. He said that the phone record evidence was ridiculous. They were having a hot, passionate affair. Of course, they would speak several times a day. Well, in the end, the jury wasn't buying what they were selling because after fewer than four hours of deliberation, including a one-hour lunch, they found John Zafino guilty of murder. I love it when you throw the lunch in there. No lunch. I like it, too, when they're like, we know what's going on here, but are you a little hungry? I could go yeah, for chicken Caesar. I'm a chicken season. hungry. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so John was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 23 years. So Bonnie Zach stood with her teenage son, Ashton, as they delivered their victim impact statements. You know, this is how it was described from If Looks Could Kill. If it wasn't for Cindy George, Bonnie said in open court... My husband wouldn't have been shot. My son wouldn't have lost his father. And you, looking at John Zavino, wouldn't be looking forward to spending the rest of your life in jail. You're just the fall guy. Do you think Cindy cares about you now? Are you willing to take all the heat for this and let her continue to live her extravagant lifestyle? Get it, Bonnie. Bonnie, get it, Bonnie. Bonnie held Ashton's hand as she spoke. Now it's time for Ashton. So I think he's around 15 at this point, and he's just, you're going to love Ashton. He's so smart. When it came time for Ashton to speak, he explained how sorry he was that he had argued with his father on the morning of the murder. He was upset, and he would feel pretty guilty for the rest of his life that he never got a chance to say goodbye. And M. William Phelps said, what a boy Bonnie had raised. Incredible. He sounded like the man he was destined to become. Then looking at Zafino, who sat totally stiff and unemotional, Ashton asked him, was it worth not seeing your own son ever again? Good question, Ashton. Yeah. Was it worth killing my dad for Cindy? He asked next, I know my dad did not always do the right thing, but he did not deserve to be killed. No. It is the whole point. You can be a nasty person. And that's why we have a justice system, you know, but you don't deserve to be killed. No. Yeah. So Bonnie and Ashen had brought up a point that the jury had also made when they delivered their verdict in their follow up interviews. They were like, why isn't Cindy George on trial? Why are we only dealing with this guy? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the prosecutors were actually already building a case against Cindy at this okay. point. Yeah. And what ended up being the linchpin of their argument was evidence that the Georges had funded John Zafino's defense attorneys to the yeah. tune of over fifteen grand.
0: Come on. Yeah. That looks great. pretty, pretty guilty. <laughs> yeah.
1: John had also said in a recorded phone call from prison, he was talking to a family member. He said that this family member needed to get a message to the George family. And he said that they needed to hire him a big time lawyer like Johnny Cochran or else. Then he paused and said, because if I start making calls, shit's going to happen. So it certainly seems like that was some hush attorney money right there. Yeah. On January 10th, 2005, Cindy was arrested for the murder of her longtime lover while shopping in a bath and body works.
0: Oh, no. Can you imagine? That's my mom's favorite store.
1: The the smell of cucumber melon body spray for the rest of your life
0: just smells like getting arrested. (laughs) Oh, man, that ruins a lot of things for a lot of people.
1: I was always cucumber melon. What was your thing at Bath and Body? Eucalyptus Works?
0: spearmint for life. Oh, you know that's classy. You're a classy, bitch. Aromatherapy. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> cucumber is- melon suits you.
1: Oh man. So yeah, she was arrested in Bath and Body Works. Woof. Yikes! Yikes. Ed George put up ten percent of her two million dollar bond. He brought in two hundred grand in cash to get her out of jail so she could wait for her trial in the comfort of her own eighth. Thousand square foot mansion. Thank goodness. Yeah. I mean, this was just the beginning of his support for her. He never wavered, at least publicly. He was behind her 1000%. Ed and some of their older children went to every single day of her trial. They sat in like the first row, they, you know, cheered for her. They, you know, told her, like, you're doing great. They gave her hugs as much as
0: they could. I mean, she had a full-on squad of supporters at this trial. I mean, that's one good thing about having seven kids, you know? Yeah, you got a home team. Yeah.
1: So So Sydney and her defense team made an interesting choice. Instead of a trial by the jury of her peers, she decided to have a bench trial, which essentially means the judge decides completely on their own. And this is always an interesting choice because I think... And I could be wrong, guys. Again, not a lawyer. Traditionally, defendants usually do better with a jury of their peers than they do with just a judge. So it was was kind of a questionable decision. In Cindy's perspective, this case had been very big news in Akron, and she didn't feel like she was going to get a fair trial from her peers. She also, you know, kind of had a like, oh, they're going to want to
0: see a rich bitch brought to justice. And not feel me kind of. They're gonna wanna see the fourth place Miss Ohio winner go down. I know they all are going to.
1: Everyone's so jealous of me. (laughs) They're
0: so jealous.
1: Yeah. That was basically her read. Yeah. So they decided to choose a judge who they felt like would just look at the facts.
0: Okay. The facts are that you manipulated a guy into killing your ex-lover. That's the facts.
1: Uh, Them, the facts. <laughs> Cindy stood accused of murder as well as conspiracy to commit murder for the National Park attempt. The prosecution presented essentially the same case that they had at yeah. John's trial. There wasn't a lot that had to be different in this one. Although this time, you know, they obviously were highlighting how duplicitous and sneaky and what a liar Cindy is rather than what an abusive piece of shit John is. Yeah. Yeah. And they, the real pieces of evidence against her, at least the best ones, were, you know, that she had provided the money for not only the motorcycle and, like, his lifestyle, but that afterwards the George family had paid for his attorney's yeah. bills. And this was, this at the beginning of the trial was kind of in contention. Basically, these attorneys had been with her since the beginning, and they had facilitated the money going from the Georges to the attorneys that represented John Zafino. And so the prosecution wanted them thrown off the case before the trial, which would have benefited the prosecution because they would have had to go against counsel that didn't really know the case as well, you know? So they were trying to do a legal maneuver to say, this is a conflict of interest. These attorneys paid this other defendant's attorney's bills. So, you know, you got to throw them off the case. But at the time, Cindy's lawyers were saying, no, it's not a it's not a conflict of interest. It's it was something called, you know, like a co-defendant fund, essentially. Yeah. And the judge on the trial let it in. So those attorneys were allowed to stay. Yeah. But with staying, the evidence that they had paid for John's defense also stayed. That was the deal. Like you keep keep it in and we're going to bring it up. The fact that you were involved in all of this, you know. Yeah. So the former nanny testified that, you know, Cindy had had that black eye, that she had confided in her, that Jeff was the real father of the youngest child and had threatened to take the young girl to Israel. The prosecution also produced a recorded phone conversation of John Zefino talking to another relative after he was arrested and apparently they played the recording and he, in in it, he said that this family member was supposed to let his friends know that he needed to get out of jail on bond. He said, if they don't understand what he means, they will lose their freedom. They've just put two and a half million dollars into their restaurant. He said, rather frankly, with a cold, threatening chill in his voice. Well, I've been in jail. Yeah. The prosecution also submitted letters that Cindy had written to John while he was in prison And she said in these letters, you know, I still love you. You know, when you get out, we're still going to be together. We have to be strong in our faith.
0: We have to, you know, pray to God. We have to pray to God. I love it when people talk about faith after they killed someone. Yeah.
1: And had numerous extramarital affairs.
0: Yeah. It's so Uh, hypocritical.
1: Yeah. And she was like, we have to pray to God that no one makes a mistake and slips up. Like, it was very
0: fishy. Mm. But yeah, so he is, Ed, Ed, her
1: husband is sitting here for all of this testimony about all her affair, about how his child's not really his biological child, how, you know, she had this other affair with this guy and she was spending all of his money on this guy. And he's just sitting there and he even testified for her. And he said that she was a wonderful woman, an incredible mother, the love of his life. And he took all of the blame for her affairs saying that he knew that she needed a lot of love and attention and he had been a workaholic and he hadn't been there for her and he wasn't surprised she got lonely and he didn't blame her okay yeah he and they're like why did you stay was one of the questions that was posited to him and he's like i just always knew that someday i'd get my loving like god-fearing wife back and she's back now and he like pointed to her and was like i love you you know and everyone's like oh my god Ugh. He needs, yeah, someone
0: better for him. (laughs)
1: does. He deserves somebody much, much better. Yeah, so basically at that point, the judge dismissed the court and said that they, you know, everyone should come back on Monday for their ruling. And when court reconvened, Cindy seemed very cocky about the decision. She seemed oh, cocky no. and arrogant. She was acting like the popular cheerleader she'd been back in high school. She's like saying hi to people. She's waving. She's blowing kisses. She's like, like acting like she doesn't have a problem in the world, even okay. though she's about to get handed down a verdict. And it actually did seem like maybe it was going to go well for Cindy because the first thing that the judge said was that she was not guilty... On the conspiracy to commit murder that had occurred in the park. Oh, I feel like that's an easy one. That, I mean, that's what I thought too, because I think that there there was evidence that she had called Jeff Zach that day, you know? Yeah. Uh, But they couldn't, they could not say what the contents of that phone conversation was, obviously, you know? Okay. It wasn't like a text message or an email or anything. And then when everyone started hollering and hooting, like all of her, family and friends were like, yay, okay, yay. And she's like, okay, 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 let's settle down here because I'm about to serve that bitch up. And this is what she said. So this is Judge Cosgrove. Judge Cosgrove said, the defendant claims that if Mr. Zafino was the killer of Jeff Zack, then it was a spur of the moment decision. The evidence does not support this decision. The one constant in this case is that Cynthia George has not completely told the truth to anyone maybe ever. This court is convinced, but for the conduct of Cindy George in financing and inducing John Zafino to commit a crime, Jeff Zach would not have been murdered. Without Mrs. George's encouragement and influence in procuring and convincing Mr. John Zafino to commit this murder, it could not have been accomplished on June 16th, 2001. In conclusion, there is no smoking gun in this case, what there is is an abundance of direct and circumstantial evidence proving beyond a reasonable doubt that she procured and or solicited John Zafino to commit aggravated murder in the death of Jeff Zack. Oh, very true. Yes, apparently Cindy just collapsed in like a pile of hysteria, sobbing loudly while her, you know, friends and Ed tried to comfort her. Apparently Ed said, we support you, Cindy. He was like yelling to her. And then the judge sentenced her to the same sentence that John Savino had gotten. It was 23 years to life in prison.
0: Whoa.
1: Yeah. So as she was being taken away for booking, Ed said, keep your chin up, Cindy. We're all here behind you.
0: Oh, my God. I'm, like, so thankful that those kids have Ed. I
1: know. He's obviously, I mean, that's also <sighs> so emotionally healthy for the children. Our thoughts on Cindy aside, I think it's probably healthier for them to have a father who's supporting their mother rather than one who's, like, bad-mouthing her, you know? Yeah, but then
0: think about, like, a, we have a bunch of kids in cases that we cover that lose both of their parents. Ugh, I know. You know? I know.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad these these kids have Ed. He seems really great. So basically, when she goes to get her booking picture done, she smiles. There's this picture of her just, like, smiling, like she doesn't have a care in the world. And so, I don't know. I mean, you'd think that 23 years of life isn't something to smile about. But maybe Cindy knew something that we didn't because in January of 2007, Cindy successfully appealed her conviction. Yep. And she had gotten some new attorneys. And the new attorneys said that the uh, verdict should be overturned because of ineffective counsel. Now, that one usually doesn't fly when people try to appeal it. It's the oldest trick in the book. But it did in this case because the judge was very clear in, in you know, her reading that a big piece of the evidence for her was all of the money and especially the money that was given to him for his defense. Now, if Cindy's attorneys had withdrawn, it's possible that new attorneys could have filed to suppress that evidence of that money going forward, apparently. So they were saying it's the definition of ineffective counsel because they, you know, stayed on the case and took the payday rather than doing the right thing for their client. And in two out of three of the judges on the panel agreed. So in March of 2007, now 52-year-old Cindy George was released after serving one year and four months of her sentence. Wow! Wow. Ohio declined to try Cindy again, and she remains a free woman. She was thrown a huge welcome home party at her massive house, surrounded by her children and her loving and loyal husband. Ed George reported to the Cleveland Plain Dealer that he was beside himself with joy to
0: have his wife home. Oh, my God. He's literally a saint.
1: John Zafino has never implicated Cindy in any official capacity or, as far as I know, unofficial capacity. So either she still got a hold on him or she wasn't directly involved? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? She was paying his bills. She had to be involved in this. So this is my conspiracy corner. I have a couple conspiracy theories. One conspiracy I have is that Ed George did know about everything. Okay. I I think he almost Knew maybe they had some sort of arrangement. Maybe it didn't bother him that his wife was stepping out. He was a very astute businessman. You know, maybe they had some sort of thing that that didn't matter. And then when he started threatening her and threatening their child, which I'm sorry, you know, it doesn't matter biological or otherwise. You raise a child for seven years. That's your child, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe he said, we got to get this guy bumped off. Maybe he said, you know, maybe you sweeten the pot, have a relationship with this guy. I'm not going to get involved. I don't care what you do. It Make him want to do this for you, you know? And I'll be behind you 100%. I'll pay all the bills. Because also, she doesn't have a job. How was she paying for John's apartment and the motorcycle and
0: all of this stuff
1: yeah, if, if he they didn't
0: know? Endless funds. Like, she can just take that money and buy a couch.
1: I mean, I guess, I guess like 5500 but somebody's rent, uh, I mean, every month. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe if she's spending that much money. Yeah. I guess it is possible. I just, I, I think there's no way Nathaniel wouldn't notice that on my credit card bill. No. <laughs> you know, Nathaniel had a funny uh, conspiracy theory that he actually was like involved in like the Mossad or like the CIA or something and this was all like a vast cover up and John zafino like is it was like a fake eye agent who's put away for this or something. So funny. <laughs> he was like, let's go wild with the conspiracy corner. I'm like, I don't know about that one. Do you what do you think? What do you think it just really happened like it happened? I do, yeah.
0: I think that's probably the most likely. Yeah. yeah. I do.
1: I okay, think he so he laid it
0: out perfectly.
1: I, I think that's probably... That's why I told it to you guys the way I did. If I didn't yeah. think that was the most likely, I wouldn't have said it. Yeah. So I do have a Jessipedia fun okay. fact. I didn't find it on Wikipedia, so I can't call it a Wikipedia fun no. fact. But, Andy, if you want to sing the theme music for Jessipedia... I don't have theme music for that. I use the same thing. Just use okay. Jesse
0: instead of Wiki. Jessipedia fun fact.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love <laughs> it. Um, yeah, I was doing some Googling trying to figure out where the Georges are now you know, obviously they're they're older. I think he, George is, Ed George is in his 80s and Cindy's, you know, at least in her 60s at this point. Um, late 60s, maybe. And uh, I was trying to find out where they are. They're still in Ohio. Their kids are doing great. And I, I found out while Googling that in December of 2020, according to the Akron Beacon Journal in an article written by Jim McKinnon, The legendary Tangier has been sold by Ed George to none other than the LeBron James Foundation. Stop. That makes sense. It does. It's like this huge event space. And so apparently the LeBron James Foundation is turning it into this huge sports complex that's going to have a restaurant and an event center and a music venue. And it's all for kids. That's awesome. That's so really nice. You yeah. know, um, it was not disclosed how much it sold for. It said that it was previously valued, like the the actual space was valued at $350,000. It had been kind of like declining in popularity, you know, because it was, it was kind of old. They hadn't updated it in a little bit. And um, then when COVID hit, I think it was just the nail in the coffin for the Tangier. And that was the end of an era. I mean, that... I mean, Ed George said in that article, he's like, I've been going to this restaurant every single day of my life for 65 years. So this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. The Tangier is now going to be a very cool uh, place for children and their families. And Zafino's still in prison, never having talked. And apparently Cindy's been quiet. So she has maybe learned an important lesson here. Hopefully. Hopefully. In conclusion, it is never a good look to <laughs> hit on a strange lady at the bar in front of your loving wife and the mother of
0: your child. Any don't lady, do it.
1: Any Anyone. lady, yeah.
0: No. It's Ugh. not cool. Also, another like, one. Another pro tip is maybe like don't buy your himbo a motorcycle that he uses as a murder vehicle. Getaway vehicle, uh, a murder cycle, <laughs> motorcycle.
1: Yeah, don't don't do it. It's not a good idea, especially one with lime green trim. You, you're gonna remember that. Yeah. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love, so no one ends up murder cycled. We love you guys. Bye. Bye.